Hey, it's the JR Are You Talking to Me podcast. I'm Rob Law. We got episode seven, The Eye. Very exciting. With me, as always, Jude Fox. Jude, are you talking to me tonight about the rings of power? Well, I will be digging my way out of ash and soot, and I'm just filthy as fuck doing that. Right, so basically it means it's uh, Saturday? More or less. Okay, so the eye. We're going to go through a scene-by-scene breakdown. We're going to talk about some theories, maybe. Maybe um, some themes that we see going on. Uh, You could almost say we'll be eyeing it. Uh, Oh, that was pretty mediocre. But um, that's fine. We're going to talk about our partner, Rowan, not dead character Rowan. I'm just going to say that for an octogenarian, Esther is really exhausting him. And uh, he's he's really spending a lot of time just keeping up with her. And uh, he gave me the notes for tonight. And he was really into this episode. But he, he can't be here today. He is just uh, he's hydrating. So, um, we're going to open up with uh, a very tight close-up on Galadriel's encrusted eyelashes and her eyelid opening up. And we got some caked-on volcanic ash. It's uh, not as she's coming to. She's regaining consciousness. It's everywhere. It's not only all, all over her body. It's all over everything. I mean, let's face it, it was a... Uh, pyroclastic flow, Jude. Well, you know, it's exfoliating. It is. You know, it it looked like a a day at the spa, the ash spa. So, uh, you know what? You know what shows us that we're truly in a a sort of apocalyptic hell? When we got a flaming horse. Yep. A little animal cruelty. Brutal as fuck. It's, it it was like when, uh, I think there was some flaming horse in, uh, Season seven, Game of Thrones with, with Daenerys uh, when she was fighting the Lannisters. But uh, yeah, Flaming Horse, that means everything is f- crazy. It's a good, good indication of the level of fucked up And so we see um, dead bodies everywhere. Some of them look sort of like they've been turned to ash. The ones in front of Galadriel, anyway. Um, there's a guy whose lower body's entirely burnt off. Um, and uh, it look, Galadriel's going to hook up with Theo, who is shouting out for his mother. And um, I have to say, I'm pretty impressed by the amount of gore. and Because they're not shying away from the horrors of war. And I feel like Jackson... In his movies, he, he kind of did that a little bit. And I think... Maybe Game of Thrones has opened it up for fantasy in that realm. So yeah, I, I think <clears throat> I, I think that um, they're definitely not shying away from it. That being said, I find uh, the survival rate a little bit questionable. It seems a you know very much a plot armor issue at this point. Um, but that being said, when we do see the carnage that. Uh, has been devastated on the people by this uh, this eruption. It is pretty brutal. Um, but one thing that yep. I wanna 
uh, I want to feel it. I want to feel the war. Like, yeah, uh, I, I, we need a little uh, Saving Private Ryan moment. Yeah, no, we're things. we're getting some of that. Um, yeah, and I'm, one, I'm really happy about that. I think it adds dimension to the definitely, to the show. definitely. You know, one thing that uh, I had questioned early on was really uh, the distance between. Um, between the town of, um, how do you say that, uh, Thurand, Thurand, I believe, and, um, the mountain, uh, Oridarun, I cannot speak today, I apologize, but, um, the mountain, Orojarun, Orojarun, which, uh, is clearly now going to be Mount Doom, um, so the the distance between these two uh, was a big issue for me because that pyroclastic cloud looked like it was rather close when it was coming up. It it was kind of um, depicted as being burning hot. Uh, obviously, it set a lot of the buildings on fire and what have you. And um, one would imagine that it would be a lot like a Pompeii kind of issue where people would just instantly and in place be turned to ash. Um, however, uh, upon looking into this a little bit further, it seems that the town is actually depicted at somewhere between 25 and 30 leagues away from the mountain, which, uh, to translate that is about 145 kilometers or 90 miles. So there is some distance and while it would do damage possibly, you know, for a strong explosion, a strong eruption rather, um, it would do damage to houses, setting them ablaze and what have you. Um, it is potentially quite survivable depending on the exact path that you're in. So uh, the showrunners did seem to possibly do their homework on this one, and I'm oh, not really oh, mad at it. Oh, wow. Wow. Did they? Anyway, so now we go to uh, Muriel, and she's with Isildur, and uh, they are in the aftermath as well, and they're helping people to survive, and they're lifting some wreckage off of uh, Valendil, but it's R.I.P. Antamo. He he dead. Poor Antamo. You know what? I'm getting tired of trying to pronounce that guy's name anyway. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, all for the better. Yeah. Anyway, I, you know, he was okay. He was a nice guy. No, he, no warrior though. So, um, Isildur. No, he, he didn't uh, belong in this world anymore. No, he's too good. Isildur, uh, he has to be torn away when he sees his dead friend. And then, um, Miriel and Isildur go into a burning shelter to save some kids. And they do manage to pull some folks to safety. But that thing just comes down, collapses all over. Certainly Isildur. It seems seems like he's not going to survive that. But we know he does. So now we cut to Poppy. Does he? Does he really? Yeah. And Poppy is singing. And uh, Nori's family and their uh, other families of the Harfoots and Meteor Man, they're all bringing their carts um, to what used to be a very fertile grove, a sort of a destination. Surely refuge. a place of safety. Yeah, refuge for the Harfoots on their migration that they look forward to. But it's all a burned up. 
and their food supply is severely diminished. And uh, Sadak, he's going to tell the others uh, about what something his grandfather told him about the mountains of the south and that they could spit fire rock. Um, and he told him that the mountains go to sleep sometimes for hundreds of years only to awaken again when a new evil is rising. Hey, uh, you know, charred apples happens to be a delicacy in certain places of Middle Earth. You know, you have to think about that a little bit. You have to think about what are those, because they're saving those goddamn charred apples. They're like, fuck it. Um, So I thought about it. They're pre-cooked. So Sadik, he's going to ask Nori to uh, have Meteor Man fix it if he can. But uh, she, she doesn't, Poppy and Nori, they don't want to ask. And Sadik uh, says he's going to ask him himself. And Meteor Man then is, uh, apparently he's listened to Sadik and he's sort of pressing the tree and doing incantations. And he's saying, Invenyata and Akuita. And he's, yes, he is. he's getting into it. And the tree's trembling, and it's cracking, and as his energy flow reaches peak flow, um, part of the tree breaks off and almost kills Dilly. And that's a little, oh. har- it's a little Harfoot child. Yeah. And so the Harfoots are all, uh, they give me, uh, Meteor Man a scared, sort of blameful look, I think. And he looks kind of like, uh, like he feels guilty. Yeah, well, you know, a- as it is... Uh what he's saying, Akuata means awaken or rise, and Evinyata um, means heal. And then uh, he continues to say uh, Lote Na, which, uh, which means flower, or I believe uh, together it would mean uh, like to flower. And um, he's essentially commanding them by the way he said these things. So he's commanding it to awaken and heal and flower. And that's what he's actually telling the trees. Right, right. And the Harfoots have this, like, very ambivalent, mixed experience with Meteor Meteor Man, you know? Like, they're They're so afraid of this energy. They're not really sure what to think. No, but they want his help, but... You know, and you got to admit, it's a little, it's a little intense when Meteor Man gets into it, which is awesome. It's kind of like my favorite thing in the show. So, um, Elrond, now we cut to Elrond, that are Casa Doom. He's negotiating with uh, old Doran, the king, Doran Third, who is holding the leaf. And I believe that's the leaf from the tree of Linden. I'm pretty sure. So to show that this, the elves are dying and the leaf is blackened. And I believe this was possibly the leaf that um, Gil-Galad um, picked up right in the beginning. Um, maybe. or, or it, it definitely looks like it, but you know those leaves. All leaves look the same. It could Come be. On. It could be. So anyway, um, the elves are offering. What are they offering? Tell them all about what you've won. The cash and prizes are game, grain, and timber from the Elder Forest of Eriador for not 100, not 200, not even 300, but 500 years in exchange for all your goddamn mithril. Five, five, five hundred years. Five hundred years. And so, um, why should he trust any elf? 
He well, oh. Elrond's Elrond's got an answer to that. He's not just any old goddamn elf. He's Elrond half elven, and he can see things in elves that other elves can't see. And it's oh. him, and he's down on his knee. He's on his bended knee, and he's pleading with him to help save his people. And um, so, Dorn the Third is going to have a private conversation with Dorn the Fourth. And he's still holding that leaf. And he says that, he gives him the Aule fire and rock speech. That old chestnut. I don't know. We, uh, we all know that one. Yeah. I like that. I like this analogy for dwarven life and their character. It seems appropriate. Uh, dwarves during, are main, Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, Dur- during the third actually has some pretty good points here. He's, a, he's not just being a dick. He's... He's making a lot of sense, actually. No, he typically makes sense. He's got his side of it. Um, And here, the rock is the um, eternal, resisting the pull of time. And the fire is the truth that all things will be consumed in time. So sort of a yin-yang of the dwarves, the rock and fire. And according to him, the elves are fucked. (laughs) <laughs> basically it's their time in that fire uh it's their time yeah, to die it's been determined by a wisdom uh a far greater mind than the dwarves have or anybody else and uh he's not risking digging in um unsupported unstable rock and he also legitimately believes that the um the dwarven race could be endangered if they help at this point and that middle earth itself could be endangered if they help the elves. He's just, he's sort of deterministic about this. Sort what of the dangers, world of gods. What dangers could there possibly be for digging too deep? Come on. Come on. <laughs> the best of all the dangers, in my opinion. We'll get to that. So, uh, you know who's not happy with the old king? I, I think that that would be uh, the brilliant Sophia Namvedi as... The ever-joyful Disa. God, I love her on screen. Disa's very pissed off. And uh, she apparently um, dwarven women just hammer out cleavers sometimes. She looks like she's forging a cleaver right there in the, in the kitchen. what they do. Uh, and she says uh, she wants to dig anyway, that other leaders support the digging. And um, Doran the Fourth... Uh, just he just feels like he can't teach his children to go against the will of the king. Disa does sound a bit seditious in, in this. Oh, definitely, definitely a little Lady Macbethish. Yeah, actually. and even more so later on. But once again, we'll we'll get to that mm-hmm. when we get to it. But uh, anyway, it gets kind of funny here. She takes back like she disses Doran's dad, and she's like, "I hate it when you." diss my mom. I don't know exactly the phrase that she turned on that. It was pretty funny. Um, but he can't help it. He just has to f- get one last sarcastic dig about Deesa's mom, and I just loved it. I loved that. Oh, yeah, little. well... I was joking! Made, He's joking! She, she had made a dig about uh, the lice in, uh, in Durin's beard. <coughs> and uh, Durin... Her husband, Durin, Prince Durin, uh, cracks back, well, in her case, you know, about his, wait, he cracks back about her mother, 
saying that, you know, in her case, she actually does have lice in her, and he's about to say beard, which uh, makes me question whether some female dwarves do, in fact, have beards, because well, that's I, kind of the implication here. Yeah, but, you know, clearly comical. Um, and, yeah, she probably does. I imagine the older ones, especially. Elrond, um, he is going to take the bad news now. He gets the bad news from Doran. Uh, and he's got to go back and tell uh, Gil-Galad. But he doesn't want to say goodbye. He wants to say Numaria. Oh, yeah, and Doran's just a big hairy ball of emotion here. Yeah. It means go towards goodness. God damn it. Go towards goodness. He still has, like, a, a positive attitude for someone whose whole race is going to die, that Elrond. And uh, so Elrond gives him back uh, that, that Mithril that Doran had given him. And as he's leaving, Doran throws the Mithril across the table, and it lands next to the leaf. And lo and behold, the leaf, it is healed, and the blackness goes out from the leaf, and it's replenished by the Mithril, and he calls out for Elrond to come back. Conveniently. Uh, yeah. And so, um, now Galadriel is with Theo, and they're hiding out in the burned-out woods, and uh, Theo is like, he wants to fight. He wants to take it back, and Galadriel explains that um, at this, right now, um, the enemy has managed to make this their shadow land. That's what that's what they were endeavoring to do. And they didn't have the position or reinforcement to take it back at that moment. Um, and they both express um, a bit of responsibility for the war. They both kind of think it's their own fault. And, and when, when she says shadow land, it's interesting because that's literally what the name Moria means is a land of shadow. Um, at least in uh, in Kenya, in a uh, it, it, did you it say would mean, uh, did you say Mordor or Moria? Mordor, right? I, Mordor. That's what I meant. Anyway, Mordor um, means land of shadow uh, in, in Kenyan. Not Kenyan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in Kenyan, that's fine. In, so, yeah. Quenyan. Pretty much. So, Elendil. Yeah. So, now, uh, let's go. Let's move on to the next scene now, Jude. Oh, So, Elendil is marching the survivors. Numenorians and Southlanders. Oh, well, well, yes. Well, um, okay. in that scene, um, uh-huh. there's, a, there's a little bit more to it. Okay. Um, I, I felt in that... Um, during their conversation, um, Galadriel actually says at one point when Theo is uh, all about just killing as many orcs as possible at this point now, he's, he's totally bought into this war-mongering mentality. Um, she actually pulls him back and says... Um, yep. I'm about, to, I'm about to get there, Jude. Actually, oh, okay, okay. this other stuff that happened before there. Oh, so, okay. um, 
Yeah, so now El- Elendil is marching the survivors, um, Numenorians and Southlanders, through the woods. And uh, he thinks he sees Isildur. Uh, but it's somebody who looks like Isildur. Of course, it's not Isildur. Um, and there's a, an, an announcement that the queen is coming, and Elendil rides to her. And uh, she's being led by Valendil. And he is questioning, he wants to know where his son is. And that's going to be this all-consuming thing for Elendil. His love of his son um, really, really comes through in this entire episode. Um, And it builds, and it's amazingly acted, I thought. I thought it was really compelling action. Anyway, so we cut to Theo, um, and he's with Galadriel, and he thinks... His friends and mother are probably dead. And Galadriel says uh, not to fill his mind with what she calls guesswork. And they're going to go to the fallback point where she has calculated where the fallback point is, where everyone's gathering, to see who survived. And they're talking about um, killing orcs. He asks her how many orcs. And she's she's killed many, many orcs. And But she tells Theo not to celebrate the killing because what she calls dark deeds good is that what you were going to talk about jude yeah uh, yeah she she says uh, it darkens the heart to call dark deeds good right which uh, which is a bit of a turnaround from her attitude actually last episode where she was talking about killing every orc child you know every man woman and child uh but of she Orcish doesn't blood. but she doesn't celebrate it she doesn't celebrate yeah, uh, having to do it. It, it, she... it almost it it almost feels though as the as though uh, this witnessing of destruction may have been a bit of an epiphany for her. I'm not sure if you know her character moving ahead might be a little bit more of the Galadriel we come to know later on. You know, witnessing such such a horror, which, uh, you know, a lot of people in wars have often spoken about um, witnessing things like the atomic bombs and stuff like that and how it changes you. I I, know. I think she is a stoic. I think she has been from the start. She is just doing her job and her job is all consuming to her. Uh, Her her job is her oath to her brother. And it's also her job and uh, nothing's going to stop her and uh, even, but she doesn't celebrate it. She doesn't feel great about it. Um, but it's what must be done. I don't think she has a choice, but anyway, fair enough. And, uh, he says, he asks her, am I a soldier? And she, and she gives Theo her sword and she says, perhaps we can make one of you yet. Um, which is, that's huge. I think getting that she's actually going to give him that sword too. Um, so anyway, Elendil is guiding Muriel um, on his horse. And I think we're starting to realize that she's a little bit what you call, I'm no doctor, but I would say blind. Well, you know, at one point she says, I see. And uh, I feel she was making a funny there. Well, and then he said, do you? <laughs> She's like, nah. And she's like, only gray. That's what but she's it's a pretty gray. You only see gray? I think that's called blind. 
So, uh, and she's like, no one needs to know about this, by the way. Let's just keep a walking. I mean, I, yeah, that'll be, that's going to be easy to hide. I think later she gives up because she's wearing a thing around her eyes later. Yeah, we'll, we'll get, yeah, that's coming up. Anyway, uh, we're at Sadik. He's a hard foot. Sadik, he's giving a meteor man directions to Greenwood the Great, where the big folks settle. And they could probably help him out, find those stars, um, which apparently haven't been seen in over a thousand years. Those stars. Which is a long time for someone to wander. Even someone with big-ass legs like you. So uh, he's basically given Meteor Man the uh, so long, and, and this, is where you, this is where you need to go. And uh, a flower springs up on the tree that Meteor Man was uh, touching. Telling to flower. Yes. And, and we cut to Nori, and she sees he's leaving, and she gives him an apple, and the family looks sad at his departure, yeah, she... and he looks solemnly back at the family. Although she's also kind of giving it to him with a look like, go ahead, piss off. Like, mm, it was not, it, it wasn't the particularly um, sad look, you know. She, she seems to be a little bit jaded right, right this second, at least. Am- ambivalent. At the very least. But, I, but, I think it, I feel it went beyond that, but that's just, you know, my perspective. They love, they love Meteor Man, and they, but they fear him. Yeah. Mixed emotions. And anyway, Nori's going to talk to Mar- uh, Marigold, her mom, and she, she says she regrets helping him going to the meteor site. She's just a Harfoot. That's all she'll ever be. Just a little wee little bitty Harfoot in this big world. Anyway, so um, we're back to Theo and, and Lady G. That's what we call her. And uh, he asks her if she's ever lost anyone close, like Kin. And she tells him about her brother, Finrod, um, and her husband, Caliborn. And he goes, you mean that tree? (laughs) The tree, Caliborn? No, this was a different Caliborn. It was my husband. I wouldn't marry a goddamn tree. He was named after a tree. Yeah. And so she was dancing when they met. And he's like, you were dancing? That's weird. You seem like a cold beep. Anyway, uh, and she called her husband a silver clam. <laughs> Those are the two highlights of her marriage. She was dancing when they met, and I called him a silver clam in his goddamn ill-fitting armor. And then I never saw him again after he left for the war. Very and different from the lore, by the way. <laughs> and he's definitely dead and gone forever, and there's no way that he's ever going to pop up in this show. Ever, ever, ever. Yeah, she's, he's going to come back just when she's getting it on with Halbrand. Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I had to do that. Oh. Oh. I'm not, I'm not smart. So anyway, Theo thinks he's responsible for this whole shebang. And I mean the uh, explosions. Because he gave the I, power to the enemy. I mean, he is a little bit. Oh, come on, though. Just a, just a little. Hey, they had a sword at his mommy's throat. 
Yeah, fair enough. But Galadriel doesn't agree. She agrees with me. I agree with Rob Law. It wasn't Fine, Galadriel. It, it wasn't in his heart. He was he didn't do anything wrong. He his intentions he was just a soul whose intentions are good. Okay, I guess I won't let him be misunderstood. Okay. And she says trust in the designs. There are powers far beyond darkness. She gives him the powers far beyond darkness thing, trust in their design. And he's like, my home is gone. It's a burnt down shithole now. What is the hope in that? He turns into Buddy Hackett for a second. Lady, it's a shithole now. Where's the hope in that? Uh, And she said, I cannot yet see it. But yeah, it's there. She's like, you know, I came from the Undying Lands. Do you know what that's like to lose? She swam back. Almost got eaten Come on, by a who god. Lost more? Who she almost lost got more? eaten by a sea beast. So, um, they have to take cover from the orcs who are searching in the woods. And of course, uh, Theo goes to draw the sword. Schmuck. And starts to make that little shh sound and Galadriel stops him and and the orcs hear it and then they inspect that area but they do not find them I think it was a wise move them cutting out when she smacked him in the lip well you know what the uh, although I would like to have seen it I have to say the ashes concealed their scent from the orcs yeah well I think uh, the shot itself was terrific because it Definitely harken back to the shot in Fellowship of the Rings when um, mm-hmm. Frodo and company are under the log and yep. the ring wraith is on top. You it, was a, it was a clear reference to that, and it was really, really well done. I got to say, I was thinking the same exact thing. No. I thought, I thought the same exact thing. Anyway. What do you know? So um, Galadriel's like, We're, we'll move at first light. We have to stay out. And he's like, light? What light? Wise-ass teenager. Light? Come on. Listen to light anymore, Mom. So, um, Dorn the Fourth... Dorn the Fourth is mine in that Mithril with Elrond. Stop it, Jude. Stop it. Oh, come on. Listen, listen. There is absolutely no sexual tension in this scene whatsoever. Thank you. None at all. I mean, they, they share a drink. They talk about secrets and secret names. You know, they're hiding from his father. No sexual tension whatsoever. So Agreed. you knock it off. Agreed. Yeah. Definitely. The rocks need to resettle. <laughs> um, they joke about their contest uh, th- that they did with the Smash of the Rock. Remember the Smash of the Rock contest? Oh, they smashed some rocks, all right. And uh, Doran realizes that Elrond lost on purpose. And then they joke about their uh, elfishness and dwarfishness. Like, oh, you're, an, you're a very dwarfish elf and blah, blah, blah. And uh, Doran's about to share his true dwarfish name with Elrond, the only non-dwarf to ever hear this language. But Elrond's like, no, save it. Yeah, the, the most intimate thing he could possibly share. Mm. So, um, and... Doran starts digging again, and they find, they break open a wall, and they find a huge vein of mithril. A vein? It was like an entire uh, system yeah. down there. It wasn't even a vein. It was a, 
it, it, it was ridiculous. They found, they found some mithril. So uh, Jordan III uh, catches them. <laughs> yes, he this. And he's not having any of it, Jude. He kicks Elrond's ass out of Casa Doom. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. He's, what are you doing with my son? Get the fuck out of my house. And then <laughs> Doran Third privately talks to Doran Fourth, and he tells him about how he nursed him when he was a sickly wee little infant. He had some kind of colic, it seemed. And uh, the elder Thor, uh, Doran took great care in making sure his uh, son didn't die. His little baby fucking bratty son. No, he, he loved him. And anyway, um, he had a vision that Doran the Fourth would be a great longbeard king, mighty and terrible as an army with banners. And that his son would move mountains. And when he says that, this sparks a huge father-son argument that Doran the Fourth is being suffocated by his father. And uh, when when Doran the uh, Fourth talks about Elrond um, being his brother and evokes his mother's name, then it gets really superheated and the elder king basically disowns his son and tears off his crest that he wears around his neck and he throws it on the ground and he tells him to leave it. It's not yours anymore. Yes, he does. And... Incidentally, just uh, going back a quick second, when uh, Elrond is thrown out of Kazakh Doom, um, it occurred to me, I mean, first of all, it made me think that I don't know when we're going to see it, but I presume at some point we will see the, uh, the great gate of Kazakh Doom with the mithril doors, which, of course, as we know, will be inscribed by Celebrimbor, uh, Celebrimborn. Um... And uh, in addition to that, over to the left side of, uh, of the doors and where Elrond is sitting, you can see the waterfall, which, you know, it's a small waterfall and we've seen it before. But um, it occurred to me upon this watch that um, it is foreshadowing that within the couple thousand years which passed in between this and the time of the Fellowship of the Ring, the, uh, the front area of... Kazakh Doom will end up being a flooded marshland where the watcher in the water will end up dwelling. Um, so I, I just felt that little attention to detail was uh, was something worth noting. Cool. Very, very insightful. So um, the we're back with the Harfoots and uh, Poppy and Nori. And the whole grove is alive with plenty of apples and fresh growth. And uh, that we have a montage of harvesting and picking. What do you think of that? I felt Julie Andrews should be out there singing. Oh, but then, Poppy, I think she's snailing. Am I assuming she's snailing in the river? She's singing about it, snails. It, it looks like she may be. Um, she's, a, she's actually singing a song which... Um, about, uh, what was it, about uh, fish and frogs and frogfish of some kind. And uh, one of, of the lyrics... Remind me of Smeagol. 
Yes, uh, that's, that's where I was going. One of the lyrics says, uh, so juicy and so sweet. Mm-hmm. And um, ta- speaking about eating, you know, one of them eating their child. But, yeah. um, you know, so juicy and so sweet, which is literally Smeagol or, yep. or Gollum's words about the fish. Yep. Yep. I love it. Who have, and, and, of course, you know, Smeagol is a... Uh, not a direct descendant of the Harfoots, but of the store hobbits, who, um, you know, uh, the presumption is that all three hobbit races um, di- have diverged from another race of halflings somewhere down the line, although it's not specified. Okay. But um, they are related in some capacity. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Well, anyway, um, so she sees um, a sandaled, Looks like a sandal footprint to me. Yeah, she does. And she immediately hides, and the next thing we see is she dropped the bucket, and the bucket's just floating there um, in the woods. And um, then we see the, the cult, the cultist trio. Um, the, the dweller, the ascetic, and the nomad, is they're called, and the dweller is the leader one that looks kind of like a female Eminem. Feminem. And yeah, and she uh, picks up the bucket, and then the next thing we see, they're investigating the tree and the flower that grew from Meteor Man's incantations, and they start to head in the correct direction to find him. They know where his ass is. They're good at tracking this magic. And uh, Nori tries to trick them, and she comes out of hiding, and she tells them to go in a different direction, and she says, he went that way. And then they vanish, sort of momentarily, and just reappear right behind Nori, and she picks some shit out of her hair. She's like, yeah, what is this? Acorn? I don't know. Um, and Disgusting halfling. Yeah, the Harfoots all gather around to defend her, especially Largo with a torch, and he threatens to burn the cult trio. That's a mistake. But the dweller just, she just takes her hand. She straight up sort of absorbs the flame, the heat from and the fire in her hand. And she then just gently uses some sort of dark magic and just blows some embers and just sets the whole Harfoot, all their carts aflame instantly. The whole caravan. Yep. And yeah, it's a real dickhead move. Yeah, they're screaming as they watch all their uh, loaded uh, wagons with supplies and food go up in flames, and uh, they watch everything that sustains them um, just burn away. And so that's not good. Not great. Definitely not great. So now we're back at the Numenorean camp, and guess who's acting up? It's Beric the Horse. Oh, Beric's a good boy. He is. He reminds me of Huon, of the Hounds. Of course. Everyone reminds you of Huon. I like Huon. We know. So we know. he's going to go look for Isildur, because apparently he, he's like, he wants to go find his master. Elendil tries to calm him down, but he realizes he's, he's got to let him go. And uh, Beric races off, because uh, he knows about plot armor, Jude. Yes, he does. And uh, 
Unfortunately, Elendil still doesn't know about that, but he'll find out eventually. Right. And Elendil expresses that he thinks he should have left Galadriel in the fucking sea where he found her. Oh, yeah. Because, you know what? Maybe the sea isn't right all the time. No. Just maybe. The sea was wrong once. So, um, Elendil... I mean, it, it was right when it took my wife, but, you know, this, this elf chick. I don't know about that. I just want to say this. Uh, Elendil, Nori, and Theo all having some remorse, some buyer's remorse on their actions right now. What, what, do, you, yes, what do you say about that? Yeah, no, I, I think there is definitely a theme running through this um, about regret, regret, or regret, 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 regret. Wrong, sh- wrong show, wrong show, right, Rob. Exactly. I like her. She would be good in this. show. You know nothing, Rob. She would be good in this show. She would be. She could be a, a comedy duo with. Uh, hey, we, we've got four seasons. You never know. With Elendil. Who I, I thought Elendil knocked it out of the ballpark this episode. I loved him. He was great. Great father. Yes. Anyway, Theo and Galadriel um, get to the camp. And we see dead and mutilated bodies. Cause it Lots is, of them. It is a family-killing show. No nudity or sexual content, but... Dead, we mutilated, have, burning, some alive, some injured. We see uh, some, chopped off legs. Some with limbs burned off. Yep. And Theo goes to the wounded tent area. I think maybe a, maybe a tent. And like a, I, think, I think it's all tents there. I think it's yeah. a, like a temporary camp. He thinks his mom is going to be there. And then he thinks one of the dead bodies is his mom. But no, she's alive. And she's tending to the injured, and guess who else is alive? It's a Rondir. Ah, plot armor again. Hey. He, Just saying. He's badass. Well, no, a Rondir, yes. 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 Theo both hugs them like both. That. He hugs them both. Then a, a Galadriel shows up, and she asks to see the queen. Um, and then we cut to Elendil and the queen. And... Elendil's telling her they can depart within uh, an hour and one garrison will stay behind uh, to escort the survivors to safety and to look for uh, any lost uh, Numenorians. They're missing. And and Muriel is now sporting that badass look with the red eye wrap. She blind. But cool. Everything's gray. Is that natural? So um, Galadriel approaches... How many fingers am I holding up? 23? <laughs> no, no, we, we need to talk. Galadriel approaches the queen, and she's kind of accepting responsibility for dragging their asses there. And, uh, dragons? Yeah, what? dragging their asses. Not uh, dragons. But uh, Muriel vows to ally with her. And to defeat their enemies, and she said they do not know what they've begun. Oh yeah, she is a uh, vowing vengeance. That's right. To finish what they started, essentially. She says, "I, Muriel, daughter of," and here we go, Jude. This is not uh, canon at all. R. Inzalandun. Yes. 
Like Natar, first of all, R. That's a weird choice for somebody who's devout. Um, in Zilandun, not Palantir. Interesting, right? Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, and she vows that uh, Numenor will return. And then they cut away and we see Elendil, like, just but ugly crying, weeping over the thought of leaving without a Sildor. And I thought it was amazing. Yeah. His, uh, again, his acting almost makes up for the fact that he's not 7 foot 11 inches tall. He is, he is in, in his heart. Maybe that's what Tolkien was talking about. Yep. That's what he was talking about. So anyway, we're back at the Harfoots, and they're cleaning up uh, their burnt-out wagons and shit, and Largo is like, it's going to be all right. And they're like, what, metaphorically? Because this sucks. <laughs> and he's like, no, really, actually all right. And he's giving them an inspirational speech, and he's like, we don't slay dragons, and we don't dig up fancy fucking jewels, but we stay true to each other, and we face uh, the path no matter how hard it is. And do they, though? <laughs> Yeah, well, th- this is uh, actually a speech that was uh, given during uh, one of the trailers uh, where he talks about having hearts as big as their feet. As big as our big-ass feet. So, um, but... Uh, you can almost trip over our heart. But you know what? They don't... They. This is the first time I'm seeing that they're having, like, a real sea change in, like, what they will do for people that need help you know before it was just like cutthroat like oh you fell behind we love you but fuck you bye (laughs) yeah you got a splinter i guess you're dead now they're kind of coming around to maybe we need to like be concerned about the those who are falling behind in reality and protect them i think they're coming to that this is the first sign that uh that the Harfoots aren't are anything more than little fucking savages. Right. So Nori decides to help Meteor Man. She's gonna go to him. Poppy's gonna go with her. And then Marigold, she's gonna go too. And even Melva, Malva, she admits that Meteor Man deserved help all along and that Nori was right all along, like and Sadduck should go with them. Because he's a trail finder. So they're all going to go. They're going to go off trail and help Meteor Man. Sadik is a little, you know, cynical. Um, but they're doing it because it's the right thing to do, even though it's risky. Well, you know, he, he also says they're probably all going to die anyway, so might as well. I don't know if he meant, like, we're all going to die at some point. Might as well make life oh, no, meaningful or we're just going to fucking die right now. No, I, I think the point was that um, after what's happened, after losing everything, that their chances have just diminished. So they might as well, you know, go help this guy because maybe he'll be able to help them back. Good point. Yep, that's true. So then um, we see Muriel blindfolded. You know, she's blind on the ship. And then we cut back um, uh, to land there. And Arandir is... Uh, talking to Galadriel, and he wonders he's about Muriel's promise. And Galadriel says she's certain that Muriel's going to keep that promise. 
She is damn well convinced. Oh, yeah. So, um, Arandir and Bronwyn are going to go to a place called Pelagia? Pelagir? Pelagir. For a fresh start. It's a fresh land. They're going to go there for a fresh start. Galadriel's going to be heading back to Lindon to report to Gil-Galad and face whatever fucking punishment she's going to have to face for doing whatever the hell she did. She doesn't know what awaits her. Um, But what about Halbrand? What about the king? He's alive. He's wounded. The the presumption I I felt is that he's going to be uh, traveling along with the survivors to... um, Pelagir, um, well, which incident was that? What we find out is that Halbrand's alive, and he's going to go. Yep. Need, he needs elven medicine because of his soured wound, and they're going to go to. I assume they're going to go to ah. Lindon together, right? Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, that's right. He does travel with them, but um, but a uh, uh, quick little interesting note. So, uh, Pelagir, um canonically is a harbor city uh, built during the late middle second age uh, in the year uh, 2350 and it was actually uh, built as a place for the faithful to migrate to when fleeing from the kingsmen during the decline and corruption of Numenor and um, eventually became um, an important part of the kingdom of Gondor once uh, Isildur founded Gondor uh, after the fall of Numenor. So, um, depending on when this takes place, it does fall in line more or less canonically with um, what it should be, that it should be there. Uh, the only question would be if the reason it was founded had to do with the faithful versus uh, the kingsmen. But um, but right. it's a interesting little bit. Yep. All right. So, yeah. So... Halbrand is going to be going with Galadriel with his soured ass wound (laughs) back to Linden. Um, And they're going to heal him up there, I guess. And everyone's saying strength to the the king as he rides away. There's cheering. Uh, Strength to the Southlands. Strength to the king. Galadriel is going to give her sword to Theo. (laughs) Who could use that on the... uh, open road back to Lindon with orcs and shit everywhere. Ah, she's better than that. She doesn't even need it. Doesn't need it. She'll get that doesn't shit in a little headlock. She's got, the, she, she's, got the, she's got the dagger. She's got the dagger. She's pretty she's deadly. She's got her brother's dagger. Yep. Anyway, strength to the Southlands, strength to the king. They ride off. Now we're back at Casa Doom. And Dorne the Fourth is uh, talking to his wife, Disa. And he thinks it's all his fault. He failed Elrond. And Deesa's basically like, that king is too fucking old. Your dad is too old. He's dim at this point. He can't see what's right and what's wrong. And the kingdom's gonna go to you. Fuck him. And together we're gonna rule the mountain and all the other mountains. And blah 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 And then they kiss. Yep. And so she, she, again, she is just kind of instigating that, uh, that seditious talk. Uh, yeah, you know, but she wants to save the elves. 
That's yeah. important. Yeah. You know, so, and, and she wants to save, you know, her husband and her place in the hierarchy of, uh, of the, uh, the ruling. Oh, yeah. Well, that's going down. She's not letting that go. No way. So um, we're going to cut to Doran, the old king Doran, the elder, and he throws the leaf, the, the one that was healed, the leaf of Lindon. He throws it to the ground, but as fate would have it, it falls through a crack and into the depths. And even as gentle as it lands, it wakes up a fucking Balrog. <laughs> God damn it, now we got a Balrog. Flame on, Doran's Bane. Flame on. And I love me a Balrog. Yeah, even though they don't have wings and should only be about twice the size of a man. Oh. oh. Or or, or of a Glorfindel. Listen, children, a Balrog can be what you want it to be. Not according to Tolkien. Let the Balrogs fly. All right. So uh, anyway, let the Balrogs Look, they fly. have flaming fly. whips. We can all agree on that. They've okay? got flaming whips, but doobity hips. Anyway, so Adar, we cut to Adar, and he tells his children to cast off their sun cloaks and helms. They don't have to worry about the sun no more. Don't they, even need the sunblock. And guess who's there? It's shitty fucking Waldrig. And he's brown-nosing. I hate Waldrig. Everyone hates Walter. He's brown-nosing. Hail Adar, Lord of the Southlands. Blue-blue-blue-blue. Father. Yeah, fuck you, Waldrig. A douche. And Adar's like, it's not the Southlands anymore. Shabba-da-bow. And then we see a graphic of Southlands on the map. And <laughs> Mordor. What'd you think of that yeah. little uh, graphic? I did not love it. I, I really didn't. Um, I, I felt that, um, you know, the rule in a visual storytelling is show, don't tell. And um, this doesn't count as showing. This literally counts as telling. You told us in text on screen something that happened. That That is showing. That's the definition of it. It, it totally does it, not you work. Know what it actually, you know what it reminded me of? The only time I've ever seen anything like that but it works is creep show from like the 1980s <laughs> yes but uh, like that is mimicking a comic book you know like this, in, in this visual style this so that did it, that you're getting that text yeah and the, the again that was that was meta commentary this is not meta commentary this was just i i gotta be honest i i think it was kind of poorly written doing it that way i think uh Having it come up in discussion is a way to show like that. That isn't literally telling, even if somebody is speaking about it. Whereas this was literally telling, even though you're showing. So again, it, I think they they were going for something, and I really don't think it worked in this uh, case. Well, uh, so but th- but it's Mordor. That's the bottom line. That's the that was the uh, final scene in the show. Uh, are, are there some some topics that you want to uh, talk about? Oh, let's see. Um, I think we have covered most of it. Um, 
Yeah, I can't think of anything offhand. Okay, so I think we'll be taking a look at um, some of the uh, lore to uh, show um, events, comparisons, um, maybe timeline comparisons uh, in in a deep dive for the last couple of episodes um, about Mordor um, and the Southlands and uh, Numenor's involvement um, lore-wise with the uh, underlings there with the they actually had had colonized quite a bit and um, it might be interesting to talk about that uh, and compare the lore to what's happening in the show um, but yeah that was a that was a pretty involved episode I really um, I enjoyed it did you uh, what was your po- did you have a positive takeaway from the episode Jude I enjoyed it. Um, I mean, it doesn't have the razzle-dazzle that the last episode had, but uh, I think there's a lot of uh, story set up, and I think we're gearing towards whatever's going to happen in our ultimate episode. Um, It definitely didn't have this structure that a lot of uh, penultimate episodes do these days, but, um, but it worked. It worked well. That's true. That is the the pen ultimate episode we we have one more um and uh also uh i i think uh it as predicted something no no sauron disclosure as predicted that's, that's oh well what do you think yeah i i wouldn't have expected anything in this episode um or now I mean, or the get, next if we get a hint in next episode cool but you know we've gotten plenty of little hints so far it's, it's just gonna be Not another that it one. means anything mm. so um you know I, I don't think we're gonna get a reveal though that's the important part you know i don't think we're gonna get a reveal what we might get a reveal of possibly is um either who or at least some clue as to who uh the cultists are and i think um i know rob you you had discussed a potential theory about them. Um, oh yes, the wolf you know, off air, and uh, the, yeah, I think uh, you know we could possibly discuss that as well uh, in the uh, upcoming uh, deep dive. Let's just say it ties it to the lore that Sauron commanded werewolves, and so that's it does. an interesting possibility that um, there are some changeling abilities in whoever these Sauron cultists are. So. Yeah, so, uh, you know, again, I think we could discuss that a little bit more, but um, I think for now, I think we've uh, pretty much covered what we were going to cover. And uh, Rob, do you have anything else? Nope, nope. Just want to take it out and say it is the J.R.R. You Tolkien to Me podcast. And Jude, you're going to take us out with some words. I'm going to bid everybody a fond adieu and take it away, Mr. Jude. Okay, well, I'm Jude Fox. And if you'd like to contact us, you can email us at youtalkingtome at gmail.com or our Facebook group at you talking to me about the fellowship. And I just want to remind everyone to like, 
subscribe, give us a five-star rating wherever you find your podcasts, and share with your friends to help grow the fellowship. Until we see you again, I'm Jude Fox, and bye-bye.